Welcome to the 10th episode of the Instruction Booklet. I'm your host, Jeremy, and I'm joined always by my co-host, a man who, against my better judgment, made a deal with a fairy, um, <clears throat> and we'll just have to deal with that. Uh, it's my co-host, uh, Michael. Michael, what's going on? Yes, he's referring to Nightingale. Uh, like, man, so it's, a, it's, it's on the wall. It says, no fairy deals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're recording this on the same day that this uh, early access multiplayer open world survival crafting game has come out. I don't know. You said CCAL is the proper acronym. Yeah, apparently. Uh, I, I didn't know that was a thing until today. <laughs> yeah. I've been playing a lot of Nightingale today. Um, if you're listening to this and you have any opinion on the art, you're interested. It's a good game. There's ser- like some people are annoyed about like server issues and stuff like performance issues. That's totally fair. It's a good game. I like it. I'm going to keep playing. Look, man, I mean, if, you know, Helldivers 2 is fine, you know, when you can play right, it. just the server issues. Yeah, you know, you just can't get into the game. Right. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, welcome. Uh, this is our 10th episode. Holy crap, we've made it 10 episodes. <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty cool. And this is our birthday month episode, so, you know, uh, ha- happy birthday, Michael. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, should be clarified, not the birthday month of the podcast, but you and I's <laughs> individual birthday months. Exactly. No, that's coming up in two months. Yeah. Uh, which will be April. It'll be our one year anniversary show when episode zero originally aired. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, um, other than I guess Nightingale, uh, what you been? Uh, what you been playing? What you been reading and watching lately, Michael? Um, I have been playing a lot of Tekken Eight. Mm. because that also came out recently and it is really good i've Um, I've heard lots of good things about it yeah i I mean i i would not have imagined that so quickly there would be another fighting game that already just contests street fighter 6 as one of my most like just favorite fighting games recently yeah so that's been really good um i've been making my way through all of the endings of both fear and hunger and fear and hunger termina Um, which has taken a while, but it's been fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, what else? I mean, as far as things that I've been reading or watching, I've been reading the manga Blame recently that I've been really enjoying. Yeah, The artwork is really good. Some very theoretically interesting things about um, technology out of control uh, and sort of alienating itself from uh, human aims and, and goals. Man, that sounds and kind then, of uh, um, topical with stuff that's going on in the world right now. <laughs> yeah. 
And then, uh, actually, I was really into the uh, new Amazon Prime series, Has Been Hotel. Okay. It's a musical series. Uh, I like musicals, so Mm -hmm. I thought it was really fun. It's like a full Broadway cast, like an adult animated show. I remember Uh, seeing the pilot originally for that. Yeah, the pilot, it's totally different because, you know, the pilot came out five years ago. I mean, it's not totally different, but it's much more high quality. Mm Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's like a full studio, like A24 picked it up. Um, Some older fans are kind of annoyed by this, but the entire voice cast has been replaced by um, actual, like, Broadway and voice actors. Nice. So, like, Keith David is in it. Oh, like uh, the the Arbiter? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And he sings. That is good. I am shocked. I did not know that man sings. Yeah, well, neither did I until I heard him singing and he was good. So, well, I guess now I just need Halo the musical. Yeah. Nice. Okay. It would be better than whatever is happening with the Halo TV show. Uh, otherwise. Oh, man. That. <laughs> I haven't watched any of it, but I saw the clip where they were sitting around and the guy that's like uh, portraying, like, you know, Master Chief or whatever. And he was like, yep. of course he has to take the helmet off. And I'm like, no, he doesn't. Like, yeah. Did you guys watch Dread? I knew it was Carl Urban, but he never took the helmet off. Right. So, but it was just a weird choice. It is a very weird choice. If 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 someone's out there and they enjoy Halo, uh, the TV show, you know, shoot us an email at like I think it's a structure booklet at gmail dot com and just tell me why I'm wrong. I've heard it's fine if you can just put it out of your head that it's a Halo show. That oh. is what I've heard. <laughs> That's a great. Cool. But what have you been? Uh, man, I have my game stuff has like shifted so much in like the last few weeks because it was like I bought I bought two games on Steam sale at the end of December, which were I bought Gumbrella and I bought a game called Scourgebringer that had been on my wish list for forever because it, it felt like it hit five bucks. And Gumbrella is a lot of fun. Uh, I even it's from Doinksoft, the same people who made uh, Gato Roboto and another game for the switch called demon throttle and they like making like retro style like games but this one is more like story focused i guess and it feels like it's basically the best way i can describe it is what if you're playing celeste but instead of trying to climb a mountain uh you have a gun and there's like a revenge plot with this bizarre eldritch horror subplot I've, i've been streaming it on mondays um, and then Scourgebringer is just like a little fun roguelike that I enjoyed. It's like bullet hell and hack and slash. And then uh, a few weeks ago, a friend of mine, uh, actually a friend of the show, who we tend to pick on, uh, Mr. Pickens, uh, got me uh, Blaz Blue Entropy Effect, which I think oh, yeah. I showed you. Uh, it's, you know, roguelite with Blaz Blue, and it's it's been a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. And then a mutual friend of ours who uh casey got me hell divers too so i played that for the first night and i mean when i, I loaded it up i was like this is just starship troopers yep <laughs> so uh so yeah i've been cool. I, see, I see the appeal the appeal it's fun yeah yeah like it's, it's entertaining uh i was definitely i was you know the nightingale game that you've been playing i have that on my radar as well um and a Sweet. couple other games on my radar that are just like slowly starting to creep up like they're finally putting out gameplay trailers for no rest for the wicked from uh, moon studios the people who made Ori in the blind forest are making a diablo-esque 
Dark Souls game. Interesting. Yeah, it looks really cool. So that's what I've been playing. Oh, and a friend of mine convinced me to download and play the Pokemon TCG online. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, yeah, it's it's surprisingly fun to play, and I like the fact that the online TCG basically gives you all of the cards, and you don't have to pay for a thing. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, reading. Uh, I bought a really cool book uh called death and co it's uh, about a famous cocktail bar in new york and i read through it and i've got some other books that i'm kind of working on here and there uh watching lately i'm still working on my uh, watch of king king of the hill we got like 30 episodes left oh nice like the later seasons take on some subjects that i was shockingly like surprised that they were like talking about yeah and then uh i watched uh, the new Amazon series, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I've heard it's good. It is extremely good. Uh, it's the same people who did Atlanta. Uh, so it's like Donald Glover and his like crew uh, doing like a fun twist on the Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Smith formula. Uh, and, you know, just reading a couple of comics and stuff like that here and there. Um, getting, uh, I'm excited that uh, I've been like, I read the new Jonathan Hickman Spider-Man book was very good. Is it the ultimate? Yeah, it's ultimate. It's, nice. I'm excited. Uh, it's it's so good. Like that first issue was like, okay, you know, this is going to be a completely different like idea, and you know, brace yourself, people. He's married and has kids. <laughs> yeah, it, it couldn't happen to six one six Peter Parker, so they let it happen to Ultimate Peter Parker. Yeah, and the whole setup for the Ultimate Universe, the new Ultimate Universe, has been like kind of fantastic. So. That's great. I like the old. I mean, you know, it was mishandled, but I liked the idea of Ultimates, mm -hmm. um, and I liked the maker a lot. So, yeah, he's and and so far they've already taken some like interesting choices. So, uh, I won't spoil anything from there. Um, so yeah, no, it's been a it's been a nice little little month of uh, just playing games and such. But uh, anyway, I guess uh, you know, seeing as uh, our both of us had you know birthday. I, physical birthday this month uh we decided for our choice of an episode because it was also an off month was we were going to celebrate a, a little you know little indie like you know game that maybe no one hasn't heard of called dungeons and dragons yeah <laughs> it turned it turned 50 this year um the game uh dungeons and dragons originally like come out in like 1974 and we were also just like well you know we're kind of in this fun time period right now in the early 80s where we're talking about with the history and surprisingly enough D&D has really influenced video games in I think more ways than people realize um, you wouldn't think that D&D would influence stuff like you know Call of Duty or the newest NBA game but it kind of has <laughs> So, um, so yeah, we're going to talk about Dungeons and Dragons' influence on video games today. Uh, we're going to have it kind of break down into like three sections. We're going to talk about, we're going to do a little recap of like talking about where D&D started, how it kind of grew. We're going to talk about early developments with D&D and games. And then we're going to talk about like how D&D's influenced games today. And then we'll kind of wrap it up there. So I know, I know, Michael, you've been, you've been excited about this episode for a little while. Yes, uh, I had to do a lot of research into kind of the history of um, role-playing games, both tabletop and computer. Last semester, while I was writing uh, the first chapter of my dissertation that I needed, 
to write in order to get candidacy. Yeah. Um, and so actually what I was thinking that I would do here when we're going over the history, because I've got a lot of this written already, is I can actually read some excerpts from my dissertation, because uh, I think they present it presents the information quite well. Okay. Um, I'll just try my best to not be stiff, uh, <laughs> as a, you know, like I'm reading. Right. Um, but <clears throat> yeah. I'll go ahead and jump right into it. Yeah, go for it, man. Um, so a lot of people think that, just some foreground, a lot of people think that the hobby of Dungeons & Dragons originally comes from like a bunch of nerds hanging out in, uh, I don't know, like arcades or, you know, their mom's basements or something, just like huddled around reading Lord of the Rings. And that's partially true. Yeah. Um, but actually, um, before troops of college students meeting in dorm rooms or renting out library study rooms for their weekly games of D&D or even Vampire the Masquerade, there were studious cadets in 17th century Prussian military academies simulating battles on the tabletop as a means of honing their strategic acumen regarding the art of war. One of the earliest examples of the latter is Christopher Weichmann's Königspiel, developed in 1664 as a modified version of chess. Uh, games like Weichmann, uh, game developers like Weichmann believed that players would learn useful military and political principles from games such as Konigspiel, as these games sought to accurately simulate the dynamics of war rather than merely symbolize war in a more abstract way as chess might. Uh, so there was a practical point to playing these games. They served kind of an instrumental function towards some end, which was in this case actually learning to be better military commanders. Okay. Uh, and after. After the un unexpected defeat of France in the Franco-Prussian War in 1871, war games began to receive more widespread attention um, for their uses in military academies, as this outcome for the war was at least partially attributed to their use in Prussian military academies. And less than a decade later, the United States introduced Charles Toton's war game Strategos into the Naval War College. Oh, um, most of this information, by the way, you can uh, find in uh, Joseph Laycock's book, Dangerous Games, uh, which is about the moral panic surrounding Dungeons and Dragons that kind of happened in the 80s and 90s. Very good book. Um, he does a lot of historicizing for early D&D. Uh, so I just want to shout out that book if you want to learn more about this kind of stuff. Right. Um, I remember, I, uh, I think I've... It's kind of interesting because I I know of Strategio because I had that as a kid growing up. Like, yeah, I mean, some of these games are still around. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild because I mean, like, well, you think about like chess. Chess is like still super popular today. I mean, I yeah. see YouTube videos all the time of some person like chess grandmaster beats hustler or something yeah. like that. So Ch chess is having a moment right now. It is very much so, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah. it's neat to think about like how those kind of like early thoughts on games like you know start to kind of form this basis right yeah so outside the military you have like you know military academy war games outside the military the western public began to take slowly to war gaming in the early 20th century mm -hmm. though the hobby would not see major commercial success until the mid-century with games like charles roberts tactics and gettysburg in the 1950s and then 1960s respectively um, one funny example, H.G. Uh, Wells, the sci-fi author, um, he had his own war game that he published um, or released, I guess, in 1913 uh, called Little Wars, a game for boys from 12 years of age to 150. That and is... for that more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys games and books. That is that is a it's wide ridiculous. thing. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. Um, 
But anyway, also scholar Matt Barton explains that uh, although the professional activity and the hobby have much in common, they are often differentiated as war gaming and war gaming the former designating the professional and the latter the hobbyist games. Uh, so there's a space in between war and gaming in the more professional version. Oh, okay. Uh, and then it wasn't until the latter half of the 20th century that war gaming began to cross-pollinate with elements of fantasy and science fiction pop culture, at which point it became increasingly commonplace to see wizards and dragons take their place at the table alongside Roman phalanxes and German panzer tanks. Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson, two wargaming enthusiasts who would later go on to create Dungeons and Dragons in 1974, would both independently experiment with fantasy additions to their war games around 1970. Uh, in 1971, Gygax and Jeff Perrin published their medieval war game Chainmail, and one year after published a second edition with fantasy elements that would be right at home in Lord of the Rings. Elves, dwarves, orcs, ents, balrogs, etc. Okay. Meanwhile, Arneson saw success with a game called Blackmore in 1971 that saw players take on the role of modern-day college students sent back in time trying to survive an anachronistic medieval setting. Blackmore featured a significantly reduced scale to its play, each player assuming the role of individual characters rather than filling the role of a commander in charge of an entire army, as players had traditionally done for many older war games. Like older war games, however, Blackmore often featured an ongoing quote unquote campaign of connected games. So that's where that term comes from, by the way. Mm -hmm. A campaign of connected games where the events of subsequent play sessions would continue from the events of the previous sessions. The term campaign is still used in this way by many D&D tables, though other, you know, tabletop role playing games like the World of Darkness use more narratively inspired terms like Chronicle. Right. Uh, and then when Gygax and Arneson met for the first time at 1972 at Gygax's Gen Con in Lake Geneva, they began collaboration on a handful of projects, one of which would go on to become the first edition of the now legendary Dungeons and Dragons role-playing game. Uh, and the unprecedented success of D&D saw a wave of imitators over the course of the decade as the era of the modern role-playing game had officially begun. Nice. I, uh, um, it's funny, for some of the research, I actually found PDF scans of Chainmail and Blackmore and read them both in research for all of this. <laughs> yep. I, I do think that they still kind of have like a cult following. Obviously, they're not insanely popular anymore mm. now that DMP is a thing. Uh, but they kind of have a very important moment in the history of this hobby, even if neither of them are quite yet like... I would I would call a tabletop RPG in its truest form, uh, which is kind of what D and D. Yeah, is. it's it was interesting, like reading through like uh, Chainmail and Blackmore, like in preparation for all this, because it was like some of the language is like so detailed. Like they talk about like the steps of combat, and there was like f five or six pages worth of stuff where it's just like, like I, th I think Blackmore in particular was like. There's a whole like section where they just discuss like how ranged combat works versus uh, melee combat, and the dice system was completely different, and mm -hmm. stats were not really a thing. Um, yeah, and even in both of them, because that's like uh, in like for like the later sections and stuff like that. Just looking at terminology, like you know the words that we know, like you mentioned, like campaign, but like you know hit points and experience points and assigning stats to like strength, dex, charisma, and all that stuff. 
they're not really existent in these earlier like versions no. of these games. It's not really until like D and D starts to coalesce that they start, you know, forming. It's it was interesting to read because like you know Gygax was more like the kind of the big picture person where he was like looking at like he wasn't like as much as the mechanical rules as the uh, Arnids Arts. What's the last like his name? Arneson. Yeah, Arneson was Arneson was more like involved with like the the nuts and bolts kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's an interesting dynamic between the two of them. Yeah. Neither of them, though, were really that interested in, I guess, D&D as a storytelling thing yeah. right away. I mean, like, I think Gygax has even said, and I don't have an exact quote, but I'm pretty sure he said that D&D was more so about, about like, a, similar to a war game. Yeah, it was meant to be a mechanical strategy thing where you controlled a wizard instead of a soldier necessarily. Right. They they um, both approached it from this war game like strategy mentality than right. how we perceive it today as like you know someone crafting this like experience for you. Right. But something that was definitely kind of in the air uh, even in the pre D and D war games was that the more you shrank the scale and the more you got people like more people involved and you had them control like individual actors within a kind of world the more the possibility for something like role play started to emerge right um laycock in his book talks very um importantly about another game that was kind of an experimental game called Braunstein from 1968 that i want to briefly flag here uh-huh um, in 1968, Dave Wesley organized a game called Braunstein at the University of Minnesota, a game in which players would assume various roles in and around the fictional German town of Braunstein during the Napoleonic Wars. Players could assume the roles of military commanders, the same as in the older war games, but additional players could assume the roles of various parties in Braunstein, the mayor, the banker, the university chancellor, and others. For these other players, the joint participation was not necessarily about influencing the final outcome of the French siege of the city, but rather taking part in the shared story that unfolded at the table as the players took the narrative into their own hands. For example, Braunstein was often an open-ended autotelic experience where the fun was less about winning or losing, but simply playing, which is something you can say about D&D in many cases. Yeah. Uh, and one of Wesley's players at this table was a young Dave Arneson. Uh, who was particularly enthusiastic about Braunstein and would later kind of take a lot of influence from that uh, going on to work on Blackmore and kind of use a reduced scale to the play for that game. Great. Um, yeah, that's kind of... Uh, I When I was... Uh, the interview I have uh, that I read with uh, Arnson talks about like him looking at like the mechanical stuff of like how he adopted some of the stuff from the older war games into D&D. Cause like, apparently I, and just because I, on top of all of this, I read, I found like scans of the original, like first edition D&D. And it's so, it's kind of weird going back and reading those books and just, man, the, the language is just like so fine tuned and detailed. Like there's so much like drilling down into this, like, into like niche scenarios yeah they're very crunchy they are there is there's like the stats statistical stuff inside of being like mm-hmm. early D and early like role-playing games was just like you, i can definitely see now that you've mentioned it like where these role these war game influences are there yeah uh okay 
So, yeah, now that we've kind of got a little bit of like idea of where like D&D started and how it kind of came to be. Um, if folks remember from our episode seven, where we talked about mainframe gaming around this time and like when D&D is finally getting published and starting to get starting to get out, you know, around the 70s, there's also, you know, all these advents of computers uh, and, you know, basic and uh, magazines about like creative computing and early programming compilations like 101 basic computer are starting to like really like become a thing and it just so happens that sort of the same people who are working on these games also share some interesting like you know stuff along with computers and you have this kind of like side by side like boom with all of these like RP like these role playing games are coming out who sometimes are just straight up just D&D ripoffs like we mentioned yeah. like with the Play-Doh there was a game called D-N-D like the letter N yes. there was Dungeon Moria and Ubli so uh, and these games like explode uh, and they were played on mainframes but th- what's interesting to read about these games is they actually I think do a better job of capturing the role-playing element of D&D than the num- numerical stuff because all the numerical stuff's happening in the background on the computer. Mm-hmm. So It's uh, automating away the function of the game master, more or less. Right. You know, and it's it's all of the random stuff of, like, rolling dice and stuff like that is being handled in the background, which I think, I feel like, you know, and this is just, I guess, from my opinion, is, like, this is what helps the role-playing part of, you know, that kind of come forward. You know, sure, like, mm-hmm. Mori is like, oh, we've got to escape this, this, you know, this. there's this dungeon you need to make your way through, or Ublet was kind of the same way. Like, watching people, like, watching, like, it's really, it's kind of boring to watch, but I found, like, you know, sort of playthroughs through these things, and it's like, you know, watching someone navigate a text-based adventure game is not the most exciting thing in the world, but... I can see where it's like, you know, the fill in the blanks kind of stuff with like how D&D works. Yeah, the the random generation, too, for how those games worked. Um, and by the way, I just want to flag that games like uh, some of the earliest D&D ripoffs on computers. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but like Pettit 5 and D&D came out less than a year after the release of the first edition of D&D. Right. So in 1974, you had D&D first edition. And then as soon as 1975, you had Pettit 5 and then D&D. Um, I mean, these games were, it, they were very quick. You know, some of these uh, computer hackers and designers to start uh, ferrying things over to a more digital mainframe. Um, but the randomness, I think, really also kind of added to the communal storytelling aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't as simple as you know, oh, we all had the same experience because we played the same video game. There was kind of this element of like, oh my gosh, this guy's starting up a new run, what's going to happen? Almost like if you or I watch a stream, you know, somebody playing like a roguelite. Yeah. Um, there is a uh, a joy almost in seeing the ways in which the narratives emerge from the game's RNG-based systems. Right. Um, I will say... There's a very funny anecdote that Brian Deere talks about in the Friendly Orange Glow, where um, one of the 
algorithm commands. I'm not a computer programmer. If I ever say anything that totally embarrasses me as far as like my inability to grasp computer programming, then my viewers or listeners will just have to forgive me. Um, <laughs> or just flail, flail you on the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tag me and tell me I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> there, is a, there is a command line in many of these early games called Randu. It's like R-A-N-D-U. Um, that was basically the algorithm, I think, that governed the random number generator that basically allowed these RPGs to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason that you needed the random number generator is because D&D was random. Um, when you make an attack roll in D&D, it's not often, you know, like if you're playing a video game, for instance, let's say you're playing The Legend of Zelda. When you attack something, you know exactly what's going to happen. Right. You swing your sword, you hit the thing that's in front of you. D&D, not so. Uh, for any of anyone who doesn't know how the game works, you roll a D20, which is a 20-sided die, um, and you need a certain number or higher to hit. You know, maybe you need 12 or higher to hit. And if you roll 11 or lower, it misses. So there's always an element of random chance involved in whether or not you can actually do something properly. Mm-hmm. You need a random number generator in order to make this a fundamental part of these games. In fact, um, and I, we have this in the notes a little bit later, but I'll just say it now. Matt Barton, one of the scholars of kind of early computer role-playing games, has distinguished randomness as a major element that differentiates computer role-playing games from uh, from adventure games. Right. What is an adventure game, you ask? Uh, So we've mentioned Colossal Cave Adventure a few times. Just just a few times. (laughs) Yeah, just a few times. It might be the most most mentioned game on this podcast at this point. Right. Um, Colossal Cave Adventure has no random elements. If you know exactly how to get to the end of the game and you know exactly how to do everything in Colossal Cave Adventure... You can speed run the game basically without any difficulty. Um, overcoming obstacles in that game is simply a matter of do I have the right item I need right now to overcome this obstacle? So you run into a dragon, for instance. Do I have the sword to kill the dragon? If I do, I simply say use sword on dragon and the dragon dies. In most video games, like if you're if you, any if you've played an RPG, you know that this is not the case. You know that you need to attack the dragon many times. There is a chance to critically hit. There is a chance to miss. Uh, there is a chance that the dragon will use certain moves based on a random number table. There's a lot of random elements involved. Right. Uh, and this differentiates an RPG between an adventure game because the RPG has randomness and an adventure game doesn't. And so, Randu, this code, this line in the algorithm, actually took on the status of a kind of cult deity where the guys in this computer lab playing on these Plato mainframe computers would begin to say things like, I'm going to do X, uh, Randu willing. They would actually, they would pretend as if they were praying to Randu in order to get good luck and good fortune with their random number generation. That's hilarious. Uh, And it was so funny because, you know, Randu, Randu was a fickle god. Uh, Those games were actually so messed up that if you used the fast travel system in those games, which basically relied on just using magic to teleport you, you could teleport into a building or into a rock and just die instantly. <laughs> uh, it was like the Wild West yeah. in, in terms of how like just insane those games were. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the early, I would say, early computer role-playing games. But 
again, I've mentioned Matt Barton a couple of times. He's got a very good book, Dungeons and Desktops. He would call the first real computer role-playing game uh, a game from 1979 called uh, Calabeth, uh, The World of Doom. Yeah. And the reason that Matt Barton distinguishes this as his kind of choice for the first computer role-playing game is that Acalabeth is the first game to be available on home computers rather than uh, mainframe computers. Yeah, because we're in the we're in like the end of the '70s. Home computers are becoming more accessible. Um, right. You know, the '78 crash has just happened. Uh, so, yes. home consoles took a bit of a hit, but. As we mentioned, and we were talking about the 78 crash, you know, home computers were actually kind of thriving at that time and they were becoming more popular, which is what kind of led to that. So, yeah, you start having these games start to like crop up. Um, after, you know, Alcabeth, uh, the World of Doom, there's always like there's the other ones that start popping up that are like more significant that I, I, I listed them out like, you know, there was a uh, 81. There was a game called Demons, the Demons Forge and uh, Telen Guard. And then another game that kind of grew into something bigger and actually kind of grew out of Alchemith, which a game called Ultima, which for anybody that knows, goes on to become one of the early MMORPGs. And it also had uh, one of the earliest games to be a uh, uh, immersive sim. Because there was, I, can't, I think that was the, the, yeah, there's the first person Ultima game. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there's a nice little bit of a dip. And then you have a game like Might and Magic, which a game that I actually played at one point, uh, which would go on to spawn all the Might and Magic series. If anybody's ever played Heroes of Might and Magic, <laughs> I played a lot of Heroes of Might and Magic too. <laughs> so uh, it's neat that all of these games kind of spawned out of that Play Doh era. And even more so if you start to think about like these impacts of how like D starts influencing this development, you go from these like the MUDs and the Plato games to the CRPGs in the eighties to in the back half of the eighties, uh, which is a plate somewhere we'll eventually get to where the consoles start showing up. You start having this really interesting effect of a game like final fantasy shows up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Final Fantasy is clearly an RPG. It has, you know, you hit enemies, random numbers pop up. But, you know, there is a there's more of a storied element now. Uh, So they're kind of like merging the two, like your adventure game and your RPGs are starting to kind of meld into one. And then you start thinking about like in the late 90s, you have people like Bioware who start making some games like, I don't know, Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter Nights and Icewind Dale on computers. So it kind of starts like coming full circle at this point. You know, D&D yeah. is, has grown enough that it, people are now making games about D&D. And uh, so I guess that kind of leads us into like talking about our, our more modern influences. You know, the first one that comes to my mind is one that it's kind of surprising. Uh, you start thinking about like modern influences. People are like, oh, you know, they're just you're just going to keep making RPGs because, I mean, we have RPGs today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in late 80s, there was a group of guys that got together, uh, you know, with John Carmack and or uh, John Romero make this company called it and make this like blockbuster game called Doom. 
and everybody's like, oh, you know, that game's amazing. And then you find out that the game that split the two people apart was originally based on a D&D game campaign, and it was a game called Quake. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here's this game Quake that was originally supposed to be a hack and slash uh, Dungeons and Dragons campaign. In fact, the villain Quake was taken from their home D&D game. And instead, apparently, I think with the I watched uh, the I watched some of the documentary about Masters of Doom, and it was like they were sitting around one day and just like, "What if we put guns in it?" And I was just like, "Wow!" Always a good question to ask. Yeah, so it goes to show you how like D and D didn't just create more RPGs. Uh, kind of like how I was referencing earlier on terms like HP or hit points and EXP or experience points and character stats stats start building outside of D&D. I actually have an interview uh, from uh, website GameSpy with Arnson by Alan Roche from 2004 uh, with a quote of, it would have been Arnson's Blackmore campaign that first tossed out the either slash or combat matrix of the original game, adding in innovations such as hit points to determine how wounded a character was and the idea of advancing levels and experience to indicate growing uh, power. And from that same uh, interview, there was a, you know, Arnson says, I adopted the rules I had done earlier from a Civil War game called Iron Class that had hit points and armor class. It meant that players had a chance to live longer and do more. They didn't care that they had hit points to keep track of because they were just keeping track of little detailed uh, records for their character and not trying to do it for an entire army. So it's uh, so it's almost kind of like you start to look at it in this like scope that they sort of like the creators themselves started to realize that it was less about the combat and the people were more attached to the characters they were creating. So they had to develop these systems to define these characters that they're working on. And it makes for more interesting scenarios and storytelling. If your character can take a little bit of damage or, you know, barely scrape by, Mm -hmm. uh, but then like, you know, like chess, right? I mean, I, I don't know specifically how some of these earlier war games worked, but I have to imagine that if this is kind of a unique aspect to them, that they have hit points. Yeah. That many of them were probably like chess, where it's just like, you take a piece. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's no, you know, I move my pawn into that spot. And it's like, okay, my king has five health left, right? Like, well, it doesn't happen. From some of the reading that I was doing with like Blackmore and Chainmail, it was almost like, uh, have you ever played um, Advanced Wars? No, I have not. Uh, so, or it's kind of like that, where it's like you have your two armies. It's like kind of like think about Risk, where it's like you have your two armies, and whichever one the greater number was, you would roll dice, and that would determine which pieces would of your army would go away. It was almost mm-hmm. like the armies themselves were a singular unit, and they were comprised mm-hmm. of like multiple pieces. So. Um, Another quote talking about the experience system from uh, an article on the the website Growth Engineers Growth Engineering. Uh, it's called a gamer, Gamification and Learning How to Use Experience Points. Uh, point system have always have been used in games for almost as long as games have existed. After all, there has to be some way of keeping track of who's winning and who's losing. However, we have David Arnson and Gary Gygax to thank for the creation and the popularization of the full-fledged experience point system. 
Uh, they are known as the fathers of role-playing games for good reason. Back in 1974, they worked on a fantasy war game called Blackmore. Following playtests, Arnson and Gygax added experience points to allow players to reach higher levels. So, and that's interesting to think about because, like, where I was mentioning earlier where you wouldn't consider stuff like that, but, like, the idea of experience points and hit and health points was also how Romero and Carmack thought about with Doom was, hey, your guy has to keep stay alive somehow. What if we just slap hit points on them? You know, mm-hmm. Mario doesn't have an HP gauge in these original Super Mario Brothers. If he just gets hit, he dies. That's true. Yeah. But, you know, but then when you think about like original Final Fantasy, your characters have HP and they gain experience points to gain levels and they can advance into new classes. And if you really think about it, the first Final Fantasy is more of a traditional role playing game than, say, like Final Fantasy seven. Because, you know, with like one and three, your characters level up and you can actually build your party any way you want. You want to have a party of four fighters? You can have a party of four fighters. So, you know. Leveling is also something that is important to kind of flag in distinguishing, like I was saying earlier, adventure games versus role-playing games. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, again, in adventure games, you just need the right thing and you just solve the problem role-playing games by virtue of the fact that there are degrees of ambiguity in whether or not you can do something how do you get rid of that ambiguity you make your character stronger yeah um so in older rpgs it's very common to have these you know moments where it's like the game is telling me to go here to fight the next boss i simply am not strong enough and so i'm just going to stand outside the temple of whatever and kill mobs until i'm level 10 so i can go fight the boss Right. Uh, and yeah, you know, <laughs> grinding becomes a, a real thing sometimes. Like, I'm, I'm fairly certain, you know, when I played Final Fantasy six uh, for the first time, there were parts in the game where I was like, I'm just going to stay around here and fight these guys for a while. So uh, my party's like really leveled up. So, mm-hmm. and, you know, like, you know, we, we're talking about all this terminology, but then like you start looking at it like a macro level and it's like suddenly like later on you have all of these like people who are adapting these terms. Like, like I mentioned earlier, call of duty. Now, you know, your character has HP, your characters actually level up in a first person shooter game now. And even Mm -hmm. in a wider level, you have as much as I really don't like them, you know, uh, you have all of these like battle passes that have experience. Right. So, the story modes are called campaigns. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it is funny to think that pretty much any game that has a level-up system kind of owes, even if it doesn't remember it, like somewhat of a uh, genetic heritage to D&D, right? League mm-hmm. of Legends owes things to D&D. Actually, maybe that one's a little bit more obvious, but... Right, but like, you know, like I mentioned with like, if you're playing the new Madden game, <laughs> you would never... Oh, yeah, you did say that, yeah. You yeah. would never think about like, oh, I've got to level my coach up. Like, yeah, because it's just, it's become so ingrained in our society. And, you know, even in a bigger level, you know, right now, we're, D&D is having this like gigantic, like pop culture wave. You know, we just, last year, we had a D&D movie, um... That was really good compared to mm-hmm. the one that we had in like the 90s. Yeah. So, and. Baldur's Gate 3. 
yeah, Baldur's Gate 3 was game of the year last year. Uh, there's all of these like amazing things that's happening with D&D. But like when you start like kind of winding back and like peeling back all of these games, like RPG elements as a whole have like kind of wormed their way into every facet of games now. Uh, yeah, just about. Right. So. Yeah, like it's this it's, it's, it's wild. And, you know, a game that we're going to be talking about soon uh, that that I think will be kind of interesting to, to you know, you're talking about like with Colossal Cave Adventure on the complete opposite end of this like adventure game where everything is purely random. You think about games like Rogue and how it is a set adventure, but there are random elements everywhere. Mm-hmm. It kind of takes out some of the RPG stuff, but then, or like you start thinking about like how the, you know, like the like intense storytelling games of like, uh, why am I like, losing the thought of the actual phrase that we call it? Immersive Sims, yeah. how they are essentially like, what if we took Doom and sh- you know, still let you do combat, but now we're going to let you decide how to get through this thing. Yeah. Uh, so the and it's, problem, it's interesting. Yeah. This is maybe a recurring theme that I like to do on the podcast, but the problem when it comes to trying to define anything clearly mm-hmm. is that the harder you look, the more you're always going to find exceptions to the rule. Right. Right. We, talk, we talked about this with early video games where it's like, where does video game history begin? Does it begin with Tennis or 2? Does it begin with uh, you know, Space War? Um, I gave that suggestion that Barton sort of offers as to the difference between an RPG as an adventure game as a useful kind of roadmap or, or guideline for very early RPGs and very early adventure games. Nowadays, when thinking about kind of the lingering influence of, of D&D on the video game industry and, and RPGs more broadly, uh, it is much harder to kind of point to games in those terms and say, this is an RPG, this is not an RPG. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be talking about the Souls games eventually. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's, there's almost nothing... Maybe not almost nothing. I think one of the reasons that Dark Souls has achieved so much success as it has is that it's fair in many cases, despite being very challenging. Yeah. In Dark Souls, you know exactly what's going to happen in most cases. You know, like unless the game itself is fighting against you like the camera and like Bloodborne. Um but you don't you never press a button going to attack the boss thinking that there's you know a 50-50 chance that I hit and it's just going to come down to a random dice roll. Right. You either hit the boss because your button it's like like I said with Legend of Zelda earlier, you press the button and if the boss is in the right spot and your weapon goes the right way, you hit the boss. Mm-hmm. I would still certainly consider Dark Souls to be an RPG. It has all of those elements that we gestured towards otherwise, which is to say you level up you have stats, your character gets stronger over time. Um, but in this particular instance, the randomness has been curtailed a little bit in favor of having a more fair challenge. Uh, yeah, there, there are still random elements present in the Souls games, like item drops and 
like, but like, you know, that game is a curated experience where enemies are always placed in the same place every time. And, uh, you always know, like, you know, I'm going to hit, I'm never going, like, if you miss, it's more of a mechanical thing than a, oh, my number missed. Like, uh, like think about like XCOM where it's like, you can be point blank at someone and still have an 83% chance to miss or an 83, uh, 83% chance to hit and still miss. Right. Uh, I think the game that we were talking about when we were first writing these notes is, you know, a game both me and you played, which was Blood Bowl. <laughs> it's yeah. like yeah. that game is, you know, random chaos, fine tuned. <laughs> yep. I've got a three. I've, I've got a, you know, a, an advantage uh, to hit this, to, to always knock this guy down. And up, oh, nope, I roll, you know, three skulls and now right. I, I'm screwed. Like, in order to score a touchdown, I have to roll a, a roll that is 83% likely to succeed, and I have a re-roll back and get up, and I fail twice. Yeah. You know, like that kind of stuff. You, you were talking about the Souls games, and my brain immediately was just like, could you argue that Colossal Cave Adventure is just a Souls game? <laughs> you know, I'm sure. I mean, like, what is the other game? Kingsfield? Kingsfield the was the... Yeah, that was the, ori- that was the originator of, like, those, and then it was uh, Demon's Souls, so... I- I would say Kingsfield certainly owes some of its identity to Colossal Cave Adventure. I mean, there's obvious parallels between those games. When you brought it up earlier, you were like, if you know where the sword is to kill the dragon, you can just go straight to it. And my brain was just like, you know, if I know where this weapon is and the opening of Dark Souls, I can just go get it. And then... right. I mean, yeah, if I know how to get the Gravelord Greatsword, some of my favorite runs in Dark Souls 1 have been sequence breaking to go straight down to Nito to get the Gravelord Greatsword. Yeah. And you can you can one shot like many of the early bosses. So it's it's interesting to like think about like that kind of like where like how I mentioned it we were talking about like, you know, you had all these like games and then suddenly in the nineties, Bioware's like, we want to make a D D game. And it's like it kind of starts like looping back around on itself where it's like people start taking all of these like elements. It's like it's almost like they took like they look at D&D and they take like specific elements of D&D and apply it to their thing. Yep. So, but so uh, I, I kind of want it's like the uh, the man with the it's the two space people. It's all D&D. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always has been. <laughs> Compared to something more reliable like Dark Souls in terms of hitting enemies, you have examples like early Elder Scrolls games. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, one of the difficulties for me for a while in going back to try and play Morrowind uh, was that hitting enemies in Morrowind is not actually based on standing in front of them and, and pressing the button properly, like in Skyrim or Oblivion. Yeah. Um, if your skill is too low, like if your dagger's skill, for instance, is not high enough and you have a dagger in your hand and you start swiping in the, at the Daedra in front of you, you will be told over and over and over again by the game that you are missing, despite the fact that you are sitting there and your dagger is clearly clipping through their body. <laughs> right. Like that that mental connection would, would just make me angry. Right. It like that's an example of it where it's like I understand why this is happening. Like I understand per our description of how RPGs work, you know, that this is designed in order to balance the difficulty curve in such a way that encourages me to level up my skill with daggers. However, it also sucks. Right. Um, which, you know, I, I Marwin's a great game. You know, I'm not going to 
hate on Morrowind too much, but that element of it, I think, has aged quite poorly. It just makes me think of uh, the the sheer frustration of like playing Pokemon and your Pokemon keeps missing or if they get confused and keep hitting themselves. Right. <laughs> like, just like, you know, again, there's more examples of like, you know, RPG elements in the game that gained this influence from D&D. Yep. <laughs> so, um, the polar opposite of Dark Souls in everything except uh, punishing difficulty is a little game that I've been enjoying, <laughs> Fear and Hunger. I was wondering how you're going to work your way around to that. Yeah. Fear and Hunger, in many ways, is almost the opposite of Dark Souls in terms of the RPG elements it chooses to keep. Uh, Super Eyepatch Wolf, in his video on the game, actually makes the argument that Fear and Hunger is more of an immersive sim than an RPG. Mm-hmm. Because in Fear and Hunger... Um, you cannot level up. Your character's stats do not increase in any way whatsoever, save for items that you pick up that can help you increase your stats. Now, this changes a little bit in the second game, but not significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the main way that you progress, quote-unquote, in Fear and Hunger, is you actually get items. Yeah. Um, your character at the end of the game is almost functionally identical to your character at the beginning of the game except you have a very powerful sword you presumably have very powerful armor or you've learned a very powerful spell that is going to help you fight that particular boss um and then the combat in fear and hunger again opposite of dark souls is very heavily reliant on you know random chance to hit or miss in such a way that can be very frustrating but also very clutch sometimes when you dodge an attack that would have killed you yeah um but you know to that point of i would say you know a little bit contra super eye patch wolf that fear and hunger actually in many cases ends up being more of an adventure game yeah because it's a game where if you know exactly what to do you can beat the game in like 20 minutes without like and it's not hard Mm -hmm. there are some bosses actually that they have you like in combat you can talk to them i guess this is kind of like an undertale design influence as well instead of fighting you can talk to them uh and if there is a specific dialogue line that you follow the boss will actually just give up and you win instantly and so that eliminates the random element at all which is to say it's like an adventure game because you know exactly what to do but even then i would still consider fear and hunger an rpg right so again it's like it's ambiguous and that's not a bad thing in fact that can be a good thing yeah it's just it's interesting to see how like and you know as the show will progress we will you will you know you as the listener will hopefully see this as well as like how the games progress over time like how elements start folding into one another like how we mentioned all of these like D elements have made their way into like various aspects of other games like game design as a whole really looks at old stuff to find like new ways to do things and starts to, you know, like, like we said, like, you know, they'll start like mixing them in or they'll start like adding stuff in where it's like you're mentioning here where like fear and hunger, like, is it, it's a, it's got RPG stuff in it, but it also has adventure stuff in it. You know, there are random stuff, but then there's also like, if you know what to do, it's there. So and then, you know, like, you know, we mentioned like these and then you start looking like outside of stuff that doesn't fall within like the purviews of like fantasy or, you know, 
or like adventure style stuff where it's like, oh, here's a sports game. And then here's like this first person shooter. And here's this like tactical strategy game that has RPG elements added into it. I think it's interesting that people refer to that kind of stuff. Like they'll just be like, oh, no, it's RPG elements. And my brain generally tends to go like, oh, yeah, no, it's just kind of like d d <laughs> Like, I remember playing uh, Knights of the Old Republic, and if you wanted to turn it on, it would show you the dice rolls that the game is actually making. That's really cool. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, like, there there are internal dice rolls that are happening because they built, they built that system on the same systems that they built. Like, with cause, you know, BioWare already had experience with, like, Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter and Icewind Dale. So they already kind of knew how they wanted the RPG stuff, to, and then they got a license from you know, Lucas games to make a Star Wars game. So they made Knights of the Old Republic. And then, of course, they went on to make, uh, I think it was Jade Empire was the next one. And then, of course, there was Mass Effect. And then, oh, Bioware, how you've fallen. <laughs> yeah, I blame EA. Yeah, I, I blame EA as well. So it's but, kind of- but a lot of the old devs from Bioware... <laughs> Just right. made a new game recently. <laughs> we you promise we're not called? being we're not we promise we're not being paid by these people. So. <laughs> it's called the Nightingale, <laughs> and I'm playing it. <laughs> Maybe at some point we'll stream some of it. <laughs> yeah, and dare I say, Nightingale has RPG elements. Yeah, at some point, as as far as we're going, uh, we're gonna have to just stream us playing Colossal Cave Adventure. As much as we keep bringing it up and talking about it. Yep. So, yep. all right. Well, that kind of like hopefully confused the hell out of you as a, as a listener. I mean, not honestly, it didn't. I, I think, you know, you know, it's, you know, we're just, just remember everything's D and D. I need, I feel like I need to make that meme now and just post it on our social media of just the two. It's all D and D always has been. It's all always has been yeah <laughs> everything salad was it and that was the the so uh but anyway uh we're gonna do our wrap-ups real quick uh you know do our plugs anything we want to say before we wrap up and then uh just to kind of give everybody a projection of the future next month we're going back for a history episode we're going to be talking about the golden age of video games the time period from 1982 up to 1983 uh it's kind of an interesting period. There's a lot of uh, stuff happening with growth. Uh, the month after that will be April, which is our one year anniversary show, which will be we'll tentatively be discussing a little tiny game that we've mentioned here called Rogue and its impacts and influences. Yep. Uh, May will be our next history episode, which will we'll, we'll be covering the video game crash of 1983. That one might wind up spanning two episodes. I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a, a lot to talk about. Um, June is kind of up in the air right now. We're not really sure what's going to happen in the month of June. July will be a history episode. And then, uh, you know, kind of from there, we'll see how things goes. Uh, but once we hit our one-year anniversary, I think I've brought this up before, we're going to be looking into trying to bring in on some guests into the show, some people to talk with. And uh, how we how we plan on doing our guest episodes are we're going to do an episode talking to the guests and us interviewing it, and then we'll have another episode that follows it that'll be them on a subject they want to talk about and us also doing our normal breakdown of the subject they want to talk about. So if we have a special guest, you might get us twice in one month. Who knows? 
Very exciting. So yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, well, Michael, where can uh, folks find you on the interwebs? Uh, macro prawns on Instagram, okay. or rather macro underscore prawns, and then macro prawns on Twitter because I am still there. But again, the, the the aquatic animals mackerel prawns. It's a joke. <laughs> all right, and uh, just remember. I'm- my name's Jeremy. I have a twitch.tv slash backwards hero where usually on Mondays I was streaming Umbrella. I also play games on Monday nights if I can, if I have Monday free. Uh, I also have uh, an art account that's on Instagram and Facebook. It's called Press Art F4. It's all like one uh, art, like F4, like pressing the button. And then uh, shockingly, Cajun Greatness is coming back. <laughs> so uh, if you're sick of me, talking don't listen to that actually do we're we're gonna be recording again the sunday uh and then there will be an episode coming out after that i think we're watching the retirement plan uh and then uh, uh you can also find us here on the instruction booklet uh you can go to our link tree which is linktr.ee slash instruction booklet we now have a twitch account we haven't streamed anything on it yet, but we will soon. <laughs> soon, uh, Michael might wind up streaming Nightingale because apparently it has Twitch drops. So, yeah, it does. Well, for the next week or so, it'll have Twitch drops. So, yeah. and so you know, by, just by the time you hear this, you will have missed the Twitch drops. <laughs> exactly, it'll be gone. Um, you can also find us we on uh, the All You Can Hear podcast network. We really thank these guys for putting up with our shenanigans. Uh, you can find them on anywhere where Spotify, SoundCloud, apparently Google podcast is going away and it's all migrating over to YouTube now because that's what Google does. So, but anyway, uh, thank you again for listening to us uh, talk about D&D for a little while. If you're interested, hey, go to your local bookstore. There's probably some books out there. Play some D&D. There's like so many podcast youtube channels tv shows where people are playing dnd i'm sure if you spit you will hit some dnd somewhere yep or especially after this episode or you know explore other tabletop games out there there's you know the world of darkness there's like yep. tons of other great tabletop games that exist out in the world so i've been running a group of changeling the dreaming recently that's been cool sweet so anyway uh so yeah again thanks for listening uh tune in next month as we get back to history stuff so we'll talk to y'all later bye